Welcome to episode 232 of the Reformed Brotherhood. As you can hear, things are a little different. We had some minor technical difficulties and lost the very beginning of our episode. You're not missing much, but we're going to pick up in progress right now. Hey, brother. shows podcast your dream yes and i identified a podcast uh, that i thoroughly enjoy that has the technical chops i've been looking for it is called the particular stuff uh, you can check them out at the particular baptist.net and if you're listening to the sound of my voice then you probably have a significant backlog of their voice hitting you uh, in the mega feed. So if you're not subscribed to the mega feed, why aren't mega you subscribed feed. to the mega feed? Go do that at reformpodcasters.com. A little other announcement. I reached out to the person who owns reformed podcast and they haven't updated their website in uh, like four and a half years. I offered to buy that domain from them. And I explained that sometimes our podcast listeners get to th their site in inadvertently and our content is very, very different. And uh, this person said, thank you for reaching out to me, but I'm not interested in releasing the domain yet. So uh, apparently they just want to hang on to this domain that they haven't done anything with in, in four and a half years. So yeah, don't go check it out. This isn't a recommendation to check it out. It's a weird, it's yeah. a weird website. But uh, yeah, apparently she's got big plans for that, that podcast, reformed podcast uh, website. So yeah. That took a turn in a direction I didn't expect. <laughs> a disappointing first, turn. First off, when we started talking about when you said like maybe if you've heard this or you may know or you're the one person that know, that sounded like very Abrahamic. It started, it was very <laughs> like the interaction <laughs> with Sodom and Gomorrah. Like what if there's one person that knows what I'm talking about? <laughs> is that sufficient? And then the second thing is I really thought you were going to come back and say, because I didn't know you'd reached out to them. They were like, you can have it for $1 million. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, well, what if I could have it for $500,000? <laughs> <laughs> what if I could have it for $20? Would you release it to me for the lack of one righteous person? She's See, like, what are you talking about? I don't even, any, I have no idea what that reference is from. But that's the only kind of thing you can get here. That's it's the true. Reform Brotherhood podcast. It's true. Well, so I'm excited to bring this show on. Um, it's good stuff. It's it's good, classic Reformed Baptist stuff. Um, you know, we're still looking to broaden the ranks here. We, we uh, haven't met a podcast that we don't love. Uh, I mean, that's probably not true. There's lots of podcasts. Wait, what? Like. <laughs> uh, so we would love to have more Reformed Baptist podcasts. And I say that as someone yes. who has Presbyterian yes. convictions because yes. we are so much more alike than we are different. Yes. Uh, I think that the uh, the confessional covenantal streams of reform thought are the most biblical and the most faithful presentation of the gospel. So for all of our differences, we're basically the same. So if you've got a reform Baptist podcast and you want to join the Refo uh, society of reform podcasters, reach out to me. If you don't have a podcast and you want a podcast, then uh, there's never been a better time. Just check it out and let me know and I'll help you get started. That's true. It's still a bull market for podcasts. And again, that's something else that you'll only get here. You heard it here first. We're breaking all the molds. It's true. We're more alike than we are different. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we don't do a video cast. 
I just took a drink of my beverage, and when I, you know, like sometimes you put the the cup down and it like splashes back up. Yeah, Jesse looked that. at me like, "Why aren't you continuing the discussion?" And then the beer shot into my nose. Wasn't good. Wasn't a good feeling. The best cut. This episode has already again exceeded my expectations. And that being what it is, we should move on to affirmations and I'm happy to go first if you like yes. a little affirmation action. Why don't you rescue me from this pit of despair? <laughs> I'm a super man. The biblical comparisons metaphors yes. like on this episode killer already like that that should be a game where people try to identify all the easter eggs we've referenced already <laughs> yeah let's do it i don't know yeah there's no prize except pr- pride i guess yeah yeah seems, seems, <laughs> <laughs> seems like a pretty bad christian prize but yeah i get it yeah. all right why don't you why don't you go ahead and get us back on track here so yeah so this is oh man this is kind of going to be a, a jesus juke in some ways based on what we just talked about but being with everything we just said, oh man, this sounds like such a setup. I, I promise, <laughs> I promise this is not me pivoting in real time here. No audible is actually called. So uh, I'm actually really excited about this affirmation because like there's a lot of things I'm say I'm mildly excited to affirm. And then there's this smaller list of things that I'm like epically excited to affirm. And this for whatever reason is one of them. So let me give the genus and the species. Genus, application, species, Bible. So I'm affirming with the application, application, (laughs) dwell. Have you heard of this? I have not. Actually, maybe I have, but let let me hear it. I think you might, you might have. So dwell, D-W-E-L-L, is an audio Bible app. And I want to confess to everybody, starting with you, that generally speaking, this is so embarrassing. I find audio Bible apps really cheesy for the most part because like it can be overproduced or like too dramatic. Like I don't need like the Shakespearean guy like reading the Bible to me with like the dramatic music behind scenes. So I'm always like kind of naturally suspicious of audio Bible apps, but this is by far way above anything I've ever experienced with respect to an audio Bible app. Dwell is great. And here's part, here, let me give you a couple of reasons why I'm, I'm so high on this. The first is that there's lots of curated content. So there's lots of things you can go and listen to. In fact, they actually have uh, McShay's like reading plan in, in their format. So you can just listen to that every day. So it's already organized for you. They curate stuff su- on subject matters. So if you want to look at the promises of God, you can listen to like 20 minutes of just across the scriptures being read back to you, which I find beautiful. But here's really the thing I think that sets it above. First, there's lots of different voices and there's lots of different translations. So you've got ESV, King James Version, New King James Version, Message, you can just ignore that version, NRSV, like so many different versions. And they have men and women reading them and they've done such a good job at like classifying the voice. So there's this, what they're labeling, like there's a guy, Mark, who reads ESV and he's casual and conversational. It's almost <laughs> like a dating app. And then there's- here's, so here's left on also, Mark. Like, there's Felix. He's East African. He's reading in English, but he's a wonderful accent. He's energetic and warm. So here's what I've done is you can have music or not music. It's all like they've actually composed their own exclusive stuff for this. All of this is tailored. But here's one of the things I've really been enjoying is I've been listening through Romans. And if you set it on random, every time the chapter switches over, you get a different reader in a different version. 
So you can set all this stuff. It's a lovely reminder that one, the scriptures are for all of God's people all across the world. So when I hear these different accents, it makes me appreciate that this scripture is God's breathed out instruction and revelation to all of mankind. And I get to hear it in my language. But the reading, each of these readers does it in like just the right way to me. Plus, like when you hear a woman read in like the Irish accent, you're like, yeah, give me Romans 8 again. So it's just like this for me is like the best Bible app. So I kind of affirm it a little bit reluctantly because you have to pay for it. But I'm, I'm saying I think it's worth the price. And so go on, check it out. There's lots of, I think you get some discount on it. There's lots of different things you can check out whether you want like a lifetime. And I'm also, you know me, I love the lifetime subscription thing. I'm yes. a big like lifetime guy. So this, this app actually has a lifetime. The lifetime subscription, I think, is no more than you might spend on, a, a, let's say, like an expensive Bible. I think that this is just a wonderful complement to either your daily study of scripture or wanting to listen to the Bible. Like just get marinated, inundated with the scripture. This is a great way to do it in a way that I don't think is cheesy. Yeah. Yeah. I I uh, actually this morning started a audio Bible plan on uh, the Bible app that's made by uversion.com. So I'll have to check out this, uh, this app as well. Um, that sounds really cool. I, I do love... Uh, like the ESV, the official ESV audio Bible reader is pretty good, but I would like to hear it in some other different voices as well. So I'll check that out. That's a good recommendation. The voices are killer. I, I was surprised at how much I appreciated when the chapter switched over, as, as you know, if it's been divided in the translation, how much I appreciated and loved hearing different voices then switch over. It keeps me engaged. It's kind of like a different sense of intimacy with what's being read and what's being you know ex explained and also you can go and try it out for free so you can see yeah. and you can go to their website which is dwellapp.io and you can test some of these voices for instance rosie who reads the esv she's northern england she's soft and relaxed and <laughs> i would agree with that i just like it's just all this is like basically trying to emphasize that it's a really thoughtful Bible app. And that's what I appreciate so much. So it's, it's not kitsch. It's not cheesy. It's not corny. It's really, really thoughtful. Catherine, she reads the KGV. She's British, but she's rich and warm. That's funny. I, I wonder if these are the actual readers names or if these are like, <laughs> like demographic profile names. They're probably demographic profile. names. I think so. I that's... think so. Catherine, did I say that Catherine? Oh, yeah. I just said Catherine. Kylie, she's Kyle. North American, authentic and conversational. Nice. Nice. That's I'll why she's check reading it the NIV. <laughs> I don't, I don't do much with Ryan because he's the message. He's Just, conversational and confident, which is ironic because I don't think we can really be confident about no. the message. Translation, conversational, so. confident, and wear skinny jeans is what it should say. <laughs> he's got, he definitely has like a soul patch in my yeah. mind. That's how crazy. I've got no hate for people that wear skinny jeans. I don't know why that seems like an insult, but when it's associated with someone who reads the message, then it's definitely an insult. Oh, it's that pairing. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's basically like the sum of the parts is greater than any individual part yeah. itself or the constituent parts. I actually thought you were going to say, I have no hate for the message. <laughs> oh, I have I a lot it. of hate for the message. <laughs> actually in the message, the message, this is going to be the episode of me oh. saying things people don't expect. The message oh. is not a terrible oh. tool. If it's being used by someone that understands that it's, it's a tool and can sort of like help correct some of the issues. I hear what you're saying. I appreciate yeah. that. You had me at it's a tool. So, <laughs> Ryan, so what is what conversational, is confident, wears skinny jeans, <laughs> and is a tool? And to everybody that's reading the message. Yes. Right now. Sorry, message people. 
Uh, all right. So what do you got as an affirmation? So I mentioned this is the episode of Tony saying things no one would ever expect. And I never in a million years expected to say these these following words out loud, especially onto the Internet where it can become a sound clip. I am affirming with Pope, with Pope Francis. <laughs> Uh, so I don't know if you've heard. Wait, hold up. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. There was a delay in my voice because that was more shocking than I actually <laughs> thought could be possible. So, okay. So, so Pope Francis uh, may be one of the worst popes in, in Roman Catholic history on every possible vector. Um, he's a raging liberal. He signaled he wants to overturn all sorts of historic precedents. So, so, I'm not a Roman Catholic. Everybody knows that. But from the Roman Catholic's perspective, from the traditional Roman Catholic's perspective, he's been a train wreck. But for some reason this last week, he decided to say that the any pretense of calling or giving Mary the official title of co-redemptrix was not going to happen on his watch. And this is one of those things where, you know, like sometimes somebody is so wrong, but they're wrong in the best possible ways. And they, like they're so wrong from their perspective that they're actually right from the right perspective. So here's what he says. This is the, um, this is the summary and it says Pope Francis appeared to flatly reject proposals in some theological circles to add co-redemptrix to the list of titles to the Virgin Mary saying the mother of Jesus never took anything that belonged to her son, calling the invention of new titles and dogmas quote foolishness. So the Pope has never been more right about that. And there's never been more right. The, the invention of new titles and dogmas is foolishness. So right. like Pope Francis is talking like a Protestant in reference to this particular thing. And one of the things that I think we can sometimes do is we fail to acknowledge that people who are wrong about a lot of things can sometimes be right about things too. I don't actually think he, uh, I think this is really mostly about the title and not the theology. I think he has other statements where he's basically treated Mary like the co-redemptrix. Right. So I'm not super impressed with the fact that he doesn't want to add a title, but this idea that like we shouldn't invent dogma, we shouldn't just add titles willy nilly. That's actually really, really right on. Um, even though he holds an office that is basically, basically exists to do just that. Uh, all the Marian dogmas are invented dogmas. So it's not so impressive, but I'm going to give him a little bit of credit where it's due that at least on the surface, he nailed it on this one. I don't know what else to say about it. It, I, I heard it on the radio and like my jaw dropped open. I was like, I don't understand what's happening, but I like it. Your chair. That <laughs> I was not expecting that either. I don't know what's happening, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Your charity is admirable. Yeah. I don't know if it's charity. I just, I just, well, I think truth he, is truth. He, what is that saying? A blind hog finds a nut or a, or a truffle what? or whatever it is. You've never I heard that saying? A blind, a blind squirrel. Did you say a blind hog? Yeah. A blind hog finds a nut once. It's, I'm pretty sure it's a hog. I think, I think our family has an outsized obsession with squirrels because of my wife. I'm pretty sure that the saying is a blind hog finds a nut. Okay. We're going to have to have people weigh on that. I, th I feel like that's, you got Let, some Midwestern let's flavor Let's ask in that. Google here. A blind, a blind, it's a squirrel is the first one. <laughs> but a Our, blind hog finds an acorn is also a saying that it comes is up Is it? Yes. I didn't even know that hogs were down with acorns. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, hogs eat just about anything, so... 
speaking of blind, this is the blind leading the blind yes. in the metaphors about animals, of which yeah. we probably understand. Very why well. don't Why don't we get on with uh, with my uh, with your denial, and we'll salvage what's left of this segment. <laughs> yes, let's do it. That's great. So. I'm presenting this denial to you for consideration and to everybody else, because maybe what some people don't realize is when you do podcasting, it comes with certain kind of attendant requirements. And in the podcast that we have created here, by God's grace, we are contractually obligated to deny certain things at certain times of the year. And I say that because we're entering the Passion Week, self-described, at least by the church calendar. And by the time this gets released, we'll be like right in the middle of it. And so I want to kind of throw out there, being that I've said I'm contractually at least obligated annually to deny something, you want to guess as to what that thing is that I'm about to deny? I'm going to guess it's Good Friday. <laughs> oh, actually, that's a really good guess. I didn't even think about that. Okay, two things I'm about <laughs> to deny. Uh, Can you think of the other thing? I don't know, like Holy Days, Monday, Thursday? Yeah, kind of. Kind of like, what is, what even is that? I'm about to deny. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just tell me what movie you're looking at? <laughs> <laughs> so the original denial was, and this is really for, for, it's for pastors. It's for those of us who are Christians who are committed to the Lord's Day as like the only, again, the only holiday that God has established for us. But I would say specifically for pastors, would you please not make your Easter service a spectacle? Uh, yes. Would you basically click, drag, and drop the energy, the excitement that you want to have on Easter into every Lord's Day, at least a portion of that, instead of trying to create something? Like, I've actually seen churches where, like, because of everything that's happening with COVID, and they're trying both to leverage getting people together and being outside because the weather's getting warmer in many parts of the world, and also because it's Easter, which is this grand holiday, and again, there's this some sense in our very secular culture that you can get people to come to church on that day more than you usually can, that it's becoming a spectacle. Like churches are literally like doing giveaways. And yeah. I want to say, don't give away anything unless it's the gospel. Yeah, This really should be. So I'm with you. I'm going to deny that I'm going to slap onto that Good Friday as some sense of obligatory practice. Mainly, I just want to get Easter Sunday into every Lord's Day. And I would say, please, loved ones, don't make your Easter a spectacle. Consider yeah. what that means if we're willing to elevate one Sunday, which more or less we've arbitrarily understand there's a history behind why this Sunday in particular was chosen to celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection. But this is our present reality. Let's not talk about it as if we want to isolate it into like a single day or, or more single occurrence. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right with you. I mean, I think um, the church as a whole mimics the culture way more than we're comfortable with. And this sort of like, emphasis on special days is actually more reflective of the cultural understanding of, of the way that like time and the seasons and everything works. Um, the only cycle that the church observes formally is the seven day cycle of the week with the Lord's day at the uh, beginning of the week. And uh, you're right. Like a lot of times, you know, you think about like, uh, like black Friday, not good Friday, black Friday, right? It's like this big, right. big deal day. And, you know, I used to work retail and I hated Black Friday. And the reason I hated Black Friday was not so much because I didn't like getting up early and going in, you know, to, to Best Buy at like like four in the morning to work a 12 hour shift and then go home and pass out and do it again the next day. 
uh, because actually there was, there was a lot of fun that was had. I mean, that's actually kind of exciting. It's fun. There's energy. Your shift goes by real fast. I hated it because of how deceptive Black Friday is, right? It's, it's this idea that like, oh, you're going to get specials every, that you're never going to get any other time of year. Right. Well, the, the people who work in retail, they look at it, they go, no, no, we had the same price on the same computer like four and a half weeks ago when, you know, when we did our beginning of October sale or President's Day or whatever it is, they actually did a study where they showed that the pricing on Black Friday was actually substantially higher than comparable sales on President's Day or Labor Day. Um, and, and the way that that plays in, right, is we, we take Easter, we present it like there's some big special spiritual benefit, like you've, you're going to get a deal like you've never gotten before. In reality, it's it's actually the same thing as every other week of the year. Um, so if you're if you're over advertising, then you are going to present a problem because a faithful church that is proclaiming the gospel week in and week out, when when someone comes in on Sunday, uh, on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, if you think that Easter is a pagan word, um, you get the same thing every other week. A lot of times, there's actually a sense of disappointment in those who are not converted right. because they expected this this spectacle. They expected this high energy, high excitement. Everybody's excited. Everybody's dressed up. All the moms have flowers on their lapel. You know, all of this stuff is going on, uh, and that doesn't happen every week. And it doesn't make any sense to people. And so there's this bait and switch that happens with with Easter or Christmas, Christmas Eve, Good Friday, that kind of stuff. All of those things have this same kind of like bait and switch mentality that seems to be more rooted in kind of like this retail mindset of like, I got to get them in the door. It's almost like Easter is the loss leader, right? That's a, right. a sales term. You you put something in the advertisement that is super cheap. It's going to get everyone in the door, but then you only have four or five of them in stock. So they sell out right away. Well, that pe- those people who had their heart set on a computer are probably going to spend the extra $100 to get the nice computer since they're already there. So if Easter is a loss leader for you, that's a problem for the church. It's a huge right. problem. Yeah, this is about, for me, like, again, the more we process this, it's about, I hope it's like, in some ways, an encouragement to be more self-aware about why we do certain things, what our heart attitude is. I don't think it's wrong to say we want to reach out to our communities, want to get more people in the door, so to speak. But also, I would question whether or not that's the, the role of this Sunday right. morning Lord's gathering anyway. But with even with that set aside, it's this idea of like, we need to be thoughtful about the Lord's day. Yeah. And sometimes I think, I mean, you're definitely right. Sometimes I think what happens is we kind of just go with the flow of the Lord's day. And so we say, well, we've always done this kind of thing. And yeah, it's a holiday. So we want to, it's, a, it's like a Christian holiday. And so we want to make it special for our people. There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm saying is, what if every Lord's day is the Christian holiday? Yeah. And I think that even if you're saying, well, my church does these normal things and this become part of our custom. Well, that's okay. But the more that we start as even lay people to question and say, like, well, why do we do it this way? Like, that's not a bad question. That's not a wrong question. It's not a disrespectful question. If our purpose is to understand how we can praise God more effectively, because I think like you and I have said before, when we understand the regular principle of worship, what we're really saying is God gets to decide how he receives worship. And our preferences, our calendars, the things that we want to do always are subservient to the way in which God has said, this is the way that I desire to be worshiped. If we're going to say that he is the kind of God that is worthy of worship, of praise and adoration, of devotion and submission, then all those things must be manifest in our willingness to say, well, then you get to choose God because you are all those things. And so therefore you have priority, not us. 
Yeah. Yeah. The question I always like to ask, because, you know, the, the thing that always comes up with these discussions about man-made holidays is, well, doesn't the church have a right to preach? Does, doesn't the pastor have a right to choose of course, which sermon, right. you know, which pastors they want to preach out of? Yes, absolutely. They do. Of course. And this is where I actually think you turn that around is if you as a pastor uh, sort of think about what would happen if I didn't preach out of the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John on uh, this particular Sunday of the year? Or what if I didn't preach out of, you know, Matthew chapter two or Luke chapter one uh, on December, you know, the Sunday nearest December 20th? What would happen if you are preaching because there's any concern there might be blowback because you don't preach one of the traditional uh, traditional texts associated with that time of year, what you've just demonstrated is actually this isn't about your freedom to preach right. whatever you feel is necessary to preach. It's actually about a restriction that's been placed on you by this obligatory uh, observance that the church, whether intentional or not, has created. So I know a lot of pastors that that say, and I, I know pastors who have pivoted last minute and said, well, I was going to preach a traditional incarnation sermon on December 24th or 23rd or whatever that Sunday is. But at the last minute, you know, I was doing my study and I just felt like the church needed something else. They felt the freedom to do that. There was no repercussions. There was no nervousness. Uh, and that means there's no problem with them choosing an incarnation passage in, in winter and a resurrection passage in spring. Um, but there are a lot of pastors that would, that would never even think about it. Similar with like Mother's Day. If you feel like, right. well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't preach out of Proverbs 31, which by the way, isn't, isn't really about like women that way anyways. But, you know, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't preach about Mary, you know, on Mother's Day or, you know, if I don't preach something on Father's Day that has to do with fatherhood or whatever. Well, that that represents a restriction that's not biblical. And it represents a an onus that's been placed on you as a pastor or as a layperson to observe this day separately, specially uh, in a way that God has not prescribed. Uh, in a way that's restricting you from actually exercising the Christian liberty that you are entitled to as a Christian. So that I think that's actually the point, isn't it? Is I think what we're encouraging people to consider is where does the constraint come from? It com if it comes from the scriptures, if it's God ordained, that's something that is legitimate and we ought to take it seriously. If though, in asking the question, where does the constraint come from? We find that it's more cultural. Then I think that's the best thing that we can assess as to whether yeah. or not shall we be doing this. And again, I just think it's don't make it a spectacle, please right. don't make it a spectacle because like in making a particular Sunday, a spectacle, it in some ways cheapens every other Lord's day, which really right. is all Lord's day are a spectacle because we're always celebrating in every way, the gospel, which is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf, his volitional sacrifice, which vicariously we live through and are therefore redeemed. And so I just don't want to celebrate that. Like in some ways I'm saying, I don't want that one day a year. I want that, like that full emphasis, yeah. that full energy every Lord's day. Of, yeah. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I would love it if we had that kind of energy every Lord's day. But I mean, I, at the end of the day, like one of the points is the regularity, the ordinary means of grace, like the, the, the ordinariness of, uh, of new Testament, new covenant worship is kind sure. of the point is we, we have this ordinary sort of boring plain Jane worship 
contrasted to the spectacles of the Old Testament. And the reason is because the spectacles of the Old Testament were pointing forward to this reality that was not yet seen. Well, we don't need to have spectacles anymore because we have the reality. We've seen the reality. We we participate in the reality. So our our simple worship actually points to the fact that the, the, the substance has come and we no longer have to sort of celebrate in these showy, shadowy ways. That's actually a really great segue into today's episode because we're talking about this sense that in being saved by Christ and the way in which he has taken control over our lives, that that is a ubiquitous control. It's a full control. It's comprehensive and in ways maybe that we often don't think. And so returning to David Murray's book, Reset, where he's talking about this grace-paced life, we find ourselves in Repair Bay 8, which is just a pseudonym for chapter 8 of his book, and it's entitled Refuel. And when I picked up this book and started looking at this chapter, I thought, once again, okay, I got some ideas of refuel. Like, we're going to talk about some spiritual refreshment. <laughs> we talked about rest a little bit. And now he's going to push us further into that concept about how we become, again, like merited in the scripture and we revive our spirits. And it's all about food. food. Yeah. And we should probably say at the outset of this that, again, you and I, not doctors. Also, (laughs) we are not dietitians, but I I think his point here in bringing about food is just to say, you don't need to be any of those things to be thoughtful about things that you put into your body and how those things affect how you live, what your mood is like, and how you process the world and your ability then to have energy to do the things that you want to do. So, you know, I've been through lots of wonderful and amazing kind of health journeys over the last several years with different things. And one of the things I have come to appreciate in a profound way is that food is medicine. You know, like what we yeah. eat, how we think about what we eat, how we become disciplined in whether or not we plan out our meals. All of this does actually matter and perhaps matters far more than we think. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, I don't want to read too much into this, but one of the things that strikes me is eating the wrong foods. I know this is like a really stretched metaphor, but like eating the wrong foods is kind of the first sin in the Bible. Like in a lot of ways, Adam and Eve chose what looked and tasted good over the satisfaction of actual nourishment from God. And, and, so I don't I don't mean to like overly spiritualize that or or maybe overly unspiritualize that. But the, the point of me saying that is that we humans have this weird relationship with food where like our desires and food particularly seems to have an outsized um outsized claim on our desires and our passions. Right. Um, because yes. because our 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 lives are so tied up with with the nourishment we get from food that when we get a little out of whack Sometimes our relationship with food or our interactions with food becomes one of the first things that goes sideways. You know, they they talk about how one of the first things that happens when you get overly stressed is you stop eating well, right? Either you get so stressed out that you stop eating entirely, you're so busy you don't you don't remember to eat, or you are so stressed out that all you're doing is chowing down on on cookies right. and potato chips right. and you don't see what that's actually doing. And what that does is it it's adding chemical reactions in your brain that actually exacerbates the stress rather than reduces it. And so it creates this like feedback cycle. Yeah, I think that's important maybe for us to say that can we just acknowledge as people that food can be addictive, that we tend to run to food in various capacities, especially if we have access to it. And I'll just I'll use me as an example. I'm not gonna put anybody else on blast. I think maybe we've covered this before, but I have an issue with chips. There's no single, like every bag of chips for me is potentially single serving bag of chips. (laughs) 
Honestly, I know to the point where my wife and I have this joke where this just happened this week. This is super embarrassing, but this is totally the truth for me. Uh, We'll be sitting there watching TV. I'll go to grab the bag of chips, maybe sometimes because I'm hungry, but maybe sometimes because I'm bored. And I start eating the chips and it'll be a while as I'm consuming them. And she'll turn to me and say, do I need to take those away from you? That's her kind way of saying, you clearly have no self-control. And I think it might be time that you're no longer hungry. Can I take them away? That's a fair question. And so I think what, what Murray is after here is just trying to say, do we have a healthy relationship with food, both in terms of providing us the actual nutrients that we need, but also the larger context of how do we use food? Because you can use and abuse food. And I think we all do that to some degree. It's not that God doesn't want us to enjoy the food he gives us. It's not that we should just always eat like water, chestnuts, and like, you know, I don't know, what's what else is weird? Like, Do you eat a lot of water chestnuts? Acorns. (laughs) (laughs) We're not hogs. So like... But at the same time, there's yeah. a way in which you can appease it. So here's here's where I wanted to start because I found I'm actually going to push back a little bit on what he said here. At the beginning of this chapter, he's talking about this profound, what he considers a profound verse of scripture. And he's basically quoting from 1 Corinthians 10 31, where he says, Therefore, whatever, whatever you eat or drink, whether you eat or drink rather, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And he says, I quote, this profound scripture verse tells us that there is a way to glorify God, not just by what comes out of our mouths in praise and prayer but by what goes into our mouths by eating and drinking. In other words, every choice we make about what to eat or drink either magnifies or minimizes God, end quote. Now, here's where I want to push back on this a little bit. I think that I get what he's saying here. I don't think that's like the plenary ver- like understanding of this particular verse, but I get that what he's trying to draw our attention to, he's trying to make us aware that our eating patterns are worship like everything else in our lives are worship. What I want to push back on is I don't think that this necessarily magnifies or minimizes God, of course, but that I think it's helpful to understand how eating is a reflection of worship. What, what say you? Yeah, I was I was taken a little bit aback by that, too. It was, seemed like a sort of odd. I don't want it's too strong to say like scripture twisting, but it seemed like an odd um contextless application of that verse. And I I agree. Like I get what he's going for. I get what he's saying. Like, look, when, when God inspired the apostle Paul to make the statement that no matter what you do, it should be to the glory of God. He used food and drink as the example. Like, I think that's the point he's trying to make is not so much like when, if you eat well, it glorifies God and maximizes him. If you don't eat well, it minimizes him. I think more of the application he's going for is, even, even what you eat and drink has implications. I agree with that, but I do think it was a little bit of a weird application. And, you know, I think, I think what's interesting about this chapter is how, um, just how straightforward it is, right? On one level, this, uh, this seems like this should be the, like the publisher's blurb. I thought it was going to be straightforward. And then I read it. I was like, oh, <laughs> like that's the <laughs> refrain that we've had the entire time. Right. This isn't that complicated of a concept at, at first blush, Right. Our, our bodies are designed in a certain way to process nutrients in a certain way, and you need to give them those nutrients or they don't work right. And you need to not give them the things that cause damage or they stop working right. You know, you know, if you drive a, um, if there's a reason, it's funny, I remember this, this story from when I was in, I must have been a freshman or sophomore in college because the, the girl in question was still in high school as part of our youth group. And uh, I got a phone call. I was at a uh, like a Bible study. I got a phone call from a friend of mine named Lisa. 
And she said, I, I don't know what to do. I'm at the gas station and I can't figure out what to do. Like, I can't, I can't figure it out. I, the thing doesn't fit in the gas tank. I said, what do you mean the thing doesn't fit? She's like, I, I'm out of gas and I need, I need gas. I can't, it doesn't fit in the, the gas tank. Turns out she was parked at the diesel location. Uh, and oh, so no. the diesel pump wouldn't fit in the, the hole for her gas tank. Well, it, they designed it that way. So you can't put diesel fuel into a, right. a gasoline engine because it's going to damage the engine and vice versa. Right. I suppose you probably could put gasoline in a diesel engine because of the but whatever. But that's the point is like <laughs> if you put the wrong kind of fuel in a vehicle, um, if I put straight gasoline with no oil mixture in a two stage engine, that's going to damage the engine. But if I put oil mixed with gasoline in my four cylinder vehicle, it's going to damage that vehicle. I sound like I know a lot about the cars and stuff, but I don't, I just maintain like the church lawnmower. So I know about two stage <laughs> engines, but, but that's the point is that like, you have to feed your body the stuff that's useful. Sometimes it's useful to eat something sugary and sweet that gives you that rush of endorphins, because that's the point of eating the sugary sweet thing. You don't eat, you don't eat a donut for breakfast because you think it's good fuel for the day. Right. You eat the donut for breakfast because you want that rush of endorphins. And sometimes that's appropriate. But if you do that every day, you're going to jack your body up pretty bad over time. Right. So on one level, this is an incredibly simple concept that he's communicating. But on another level, there's there's lots of layers to it about just that question. When is it okay for me to eat something just because I want to enjoy it, just because I want right. that rush of endorphins? When it, When is it necessary for me to withhold that from myself even when I want it? Is there a benefit? I mean, all of these questions come up in various forms in this chapter. So I, if, if you're reading the book along with us and you haven't gotten to this chapter, I would encourage you not to just stop at this chapter and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you got to eat healthy. It's the same as like, yeah, I got to exercise more. It's so much more than that is what he's getting at is – there's a theological way to think about food in terms of what God has blessed us with, how God has designed us, what the purpose of food is that we need to grapple with as Christians in order to properly understand not just the physical elements of eating, but the, the spiritual elements of what it means to be thankful for our food, to use our bodies properly, to properly observe the sixth, sixth commandment, the sixth commandment, don't murder, seventh, <laughs> fifth commandment. It is. Sixth I mean, commandment. Yeah, depending on how you count, but generally well, that's we the count, sixth. We're reformed. We count the same way. So okay, the good. sixth commandment. I really got to memorize those because I remember <laughs> that time where I was trying to say there was theft implications and I actually said there was adultery implications because I got the number wrong. Yes. So there's implications for the command not to murder because not murdering, as we've talked about, also involves properly caring for our own bodies as well as preserving the life of others. So there's a lot to it, theologically speaking, that needs to be unpacked if we're going to really understand how do we interact with food or, or in this chapter, he's also talking later on about medicine and things like that. And this is also, I think for reform people in particular, all about the psychosomatic whole that if, if God has created us as fully integrated people, that we have bodies, the bodies are of value. We're not saying like, these are just some weird shell of ourselves that we're going to cast aside and completely destroy. Have you ever heard that like old joke of like, you know, saying something like I want to slide into death, like sideways, like a car having completely like worn out all yeah. of who I am. I get the emphasis there, which is like to basically use every day to its fullest, including all of your physical potential. But at the same time, I think when we're really thoughtful about food and we can make sure that we're not using it as an idol, because I'll be honest with you, there's certainly times in my life where I've used food as an idol. It's the thing that I go to for comfort mm -hmm. instead of God. Or it's the thing when I'm not entertained or I'm bored, I go to for some sense of entertainment or satisfaction. 
all those things betray what our heart attitudes. So it's odd that we would say like the things that you put into your mouth and enjoy could in some way be gluttonous with respect to how they show that you have idols in your life. This is like a thing that is hard to deal with because it seems like it should be simple and on the periphery, but what it actually is, is an open door into the center of who you are. Yeah. So uh, what I've been thinking about is this whole chapter in relation to a particular sentence in Matthew's gospel. And I might be building a bridge that's a bit too far. So I submit this for your evaluation, but here's the phrase that's been just echoing, haunting me in my mind. And it actually comes from John the baptizer when he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Matthew's gospel coming out to where he's baptizing. He says a bunch of stuff which is awesome because John is awesome and he's not afraid of confrontation. But there's this sentence in particular, this one phrase, and he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And I don't know why, but as I've been meditating on this chapter, I've been wondering, what does that phrase look like with food? So if we're following along and tracking with what David Murray is saying, that we in many ways need to repent that we are contingent beings. In other words, we made ourselves out to be autonomous, that we live our lives, we consider our health in some way to be separate from God, that we're going to work ourselves into complete disrepair, that it matters only what I do, that the extra hours putting into investment of our activities and our tasks are necessary because God maybe won't show up to do the things that we think are necessary to be accomplished in this life. Then what does producing fruit and keeping with repentance mean when it comes to food. And that's really the challenge I've been trying to assess and weigh through. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the heart of what you're getting at is, is there a distinctly Christian way to eat? Right. Yeah. That's the question. Is, is there a distinctly Christian way to relate to food? And, and the more that I've thought about this, the more that I've wrestled with this chapter, there are a lot of, a lot of, I shouldn't say weird because the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures and the events of history were providentially unfolded, but there's a lot of unexpected interplay between theology and salvation and yeah, food, right? Fair. So, so there's, there's the fall, which involves a particular kind of negative eating. There's the Passover, which is around a fast, you know, a, a sacrificial meal. The sacrificial system itself involves a lot of eating, what kinds of sacrifice can be eaten, what kinds of sacrifice can't be eaten. And then of course, when we get to the new Testament, the, the chief sacrament of the covenant, the chief renewal sacrament of the covenant is this Lord's Supper meal that we gather. And then the eschatological hope right. is the wedding banquet, right? So there's right. all these images of food that go all along the, the course of the whole Bible. And of course, the, the cross the whole course of redemptive history. And so I think it's not so much Christian, and this is actually something that I've seen in the past. Christians don't eat this kind of food. Christians don't eat this. Christians don't drink this particular kind of fermented beverage, right? There, there's these kinds of like legalistic implications of this food. This kind of food is off limits entirely to Christians because reasons. Really what it needs to be is more along this lines of if food is a gift from God, which we acknowledge that it is, if food somehow represents salvation in the Bible, which it clearly does all across the Bible, food is associated with salvation and proper eating is associated with salvation and improper eating is associated with, uh, with damnation and judgment all across. I mean, especially in the Proverbs, you think about how often 
the fool and the glutton are, are the same person. Right. Yes. If, if that's true, if salvation is somehow represented to us by food, then that ought to have implications for how we, how it is we receive the food that we are given. Yes. And I, I don't, I haven't, I, this is, this is an open question for me. I haven't really, like I said, I, I just read this chapter a week ago now and, and I'm still trying to wrestle with, all right, now I've got this theological thread about food and salvation. I got to pull on it a little bit. I haven't started pulling yet, but I suspect that what it has to do is we need to be able to receive food with Thanksgiving acknowledging that it comes from God and that we, we, for the most part, yeah, we, we can grow food, but any farmer that you talk to will tell you that sometimes you put the seed in the ground and it doesn't come up right? and you have a bad year. And right. sometimes you're sure you're going to have a bad year because you didn't sow as much crops as you thought you would and you have a bumper crop. So there, there's a level of unpredictability and providence that happens with farming that you, you just can't account for. Like you, yes. you, you can predict some things, but sometimes you just get surprised. I think that this theme is going to have to come with, we have to receive food with Thanksgiving. And this is where I think you go back to the passage. He quotes this, the section he quotes that if you're eating something unto your own glory and not unto the glory of God, then that tells you that that is not something you're receiving with Thanksgiving because you're right. receiving it with a sort of selfish pride. You're kind of receiving it in a sense of like, I obtained this, this is for my benefit. This is for my good. Um, not, not just for the sustaining of my body, even the sustaining of my body in pleasure, which is not a bad thing necessarily. There's an element of it. I think that has to be explored. And I, I don't really have more answers than that. I, I, that's not super satisfying to be like, here's a big question that I don't have an answer to, but that's kind of where I'm at with this topic is like, how do we understand what the what the analogy in scripture between food and salvation that analogy has to have a referent in real life or it does if it's not or it's nonsensical so what exactly right. is that referent it can't just be particular types of food it's got to be something about the way that we receive food and how food comes to us i think you're right on it's it's so much more about all the other things we talked about it's attitude it's this right. intent that comes first and it's, again, ironic that you bring that up because I was just thinking about this and talking to my wife about it because I was kind of trying to process why is it that we feel compelled by tradition or otherwise to pray before we eat? This idea of like even people who are not necessarily like overtly religious, and I mean that in like the most practical way that is like following after Jesus, right. there's a sense that the appropriate thing to do is to thank somebody, a higher power right. for the meal that's in front of you. And sometimes we'll pray even ridiculous things like, I've got this like crazy, like bacon, cheeseburger, like grease bomb in front of me. I'm going to pray that God would bless this to my body. <laughs> it's obviously, you know, there, there's a lot more there that's probably not as good for us as there is good for us. But nonetheless, I think what we're trying to express is that we're vulnerable, right? That like this food comes to us and we can't even, we have nothing of all the technology that we have. We can't even assure ourselves that we'll be able to grow the thing that we need to put into right. our bodies. And more than that, as David Murray touches on in this chapter and Snickers knows best from their commercials, how is it that like, if you just don't eat for a certain period of time, you get like whiny and cranky yeah. and angry, like we're, how ridiculous is it that we get that vulnerable, that our constitution is dramatically changed if we don't eat yeah. in a certain period of time? We're so vulnerable, so contingent upon something else to make sure that we have the energy and the nutrients that we need, that we ought to come before God all the time with Thanksgiving. And I'm just going to reprise something that I said in an episode, I think a couple, couple episodes ago. And that is right now on my counter, I've got two giant jars of pickles that are fermenting. I, and here's, <laughs> here's all I did. 
this is not a recipe because I wouldn't necessarily condone this. It's a great recipe, but like go find your own. If I don't want to like give the false impression I'm trying to say like it's a cooking show now, but I just took like the pickling cucumbers. I don't know what they're called. Pre-pickle cucumbers. Pickle, I don't know. Like the pickle like little cucumbers. Pack. Cucumbers. Yeah. I don't know. I yeah, think they're just called cucumbers. Okay. Cucumbers. I took some <laughs> cucumbers, like the little kind. I jammed them in a jar with like a little salt water solution, some whole peppercorns, a bunch of garlic, some dill. And this is the thing I keep saying to my wife, and she's getting so annoyed with me because like I can't help but come to doxology uh, because of this. You put them in the jar. And in a week's time, God turns them into pickles and you take them out, you eat them, they're crispy, they taste like a pickle. And you're like, I did nothing for this to happen. That like God in his sovereignty, God in his ability, God in his creative wisdom, God in his power, Jesus sustaining all of the world by the word of his power made pickles on my counter. And there's (laughs) nothing that I did to make that happen. And the thing is- Go ahead. That's true of all food, right? That's yeah. true of all food. I'm just picturing every week when you walk by this these pickles <laughs> f- fermenting on your counter, and you're like, Jen, Jen, you got to, Jen, God is making pickles on our counter. I can just see her rolling her eyes. Yeah. She, I can see her. I can see her. She, she looks up from her cell phone over her yep. glasses at you. Yeah. Shakes her head a little bit and then goes back to whatever she's yep. doing on yeah. her cell phone. It's, it's exact. Yeah. And this is the thing though, like. I really feel, I'm telling everybody like, and you as well, like I feel a conviction in this because I'm embarrassed that it's taken me this long to do this little tiny science experiment to really in many ways appreciate how loving it is. Sometimes when I pray for our food, I just thank God that he's loving and his manifestation of love is that not only that I have something to eat, but something delicious and varied. And I think maybe hopefully, like you were saying, that's what David Murray's after here. What is our attitude toward yeah. food? It should be one of gratitude, but I hope it's not surface gratitude. It should be one of like marveling. Like if you want a spectacle, it's not in trying to transform the Lord's Day on Easter morning to be something greater than it already is. It's in the fact that in this day and age, we should have amazing food delivered to us that sits in a climate controlled space that we can enjoy and love and really be stimulated by, but also be filled with and have this amazing nutrients that carries us into yeah. the work that he has for us. I can't get over this. The more I think about it, it's like the simplest thing that is at the same time, the most profound thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right on there. So I, I want to pivot a little bit because there's more in this chapter than about food. And this is actually something that's come up on Twitter recently. Um, it comes up every once in a while in, in sort of Facebook Christian reform forum group, not reform forum, like the podcast, oh. but like, reformed groups is this idea and this concept of mental illness, right? And so I want to, I want to make sure we say this and I'm, I'm intentionally leaving this short because Jesse and I are not doctors. We're not medical professionals. We're not psychologists. We're not counselors. We're not pastors. We're just two guys on the internet talking about stuff. So I want to be very tentative about what we say on this. There is a group or a, a movement within certain reformed-ish, uh, reformed-ish uh, group, like theologians or pastors, particularly like Facebook, Twitter people, 
to sort of deny the fact that mental illness exists, that it's a thing. Um, there's one very popular sort of dispensational Calvinist pastor, not John MacArthur, but someone in that same tradition. Although I, I doubt that John MacArthur would say much different about this. I've just never heard him speak on it, who basically has said multiple times in the past that if you think you have a mental illness, it's probably just sin and you need to repent more. And what I want to say, uh, and and I appreciate, I really appreciated that that David Murray approached this. That yes. is a ridiculous, ungodly, sinful, ridiculous, terrible thing for anyone, let alone a pastor, to say anywhere, especially publicly. Right. Right. On. So when when coronavirus first started there were these different venn diagrams that came out right there was like one circle that was like concerned about the virus and the dangers it presents and then another circle that was like uh concerned about government overreach and then in the overlap there's this little thing that said me right and the point was to to demonstrate you can both be concerned about the virus and about government overreach at the same time that those two things right. are not contradictory right it's it's true Probably that uh, psychoactive drugs, psycho, uh, psych psychological drugs, things that are mood disorder drugs. It's probably true that in a lot of places those are overprescribed and also true that mental illness exists and that those drugs serve a legitimate purpose within certain contexts. You can be concerned about both of those things. And what I see in a lot of places is there's there's a concern about, oh, yeah, it's just I just want pills. And it's funny, David Murray actually sort of kind of alludes to this, that his own perspective was in some ways that pills can be overprescribed. He makes kind of a joke about how one of his his doctors, I don't know if he was seeing a counselor or if it was a PCP or somebody said, I've got three pills for you to take. And then they weren't pills. And the doctor was like, they're not pills. But like he makes a joke that like his reaction was, oh, it's just another overprescribing pill popping doctor. Those kinds of doctors exist. They're out there. And everyone should be cautious when they're prescribed a medication to understand what it does. And if necessary, seek another medical professional's opinion about the prescription that you're given. But 100% without equivocation, mental illness is a real thing. Depression is a real thing. And yes. this is this is where the connection comes in in this chapter. You asked you asked about how it's funny, like Snickers has nailed it, that like when you don't eat, you get a little weird, you get a little angry. Right. The reason for that is because it's driven by chemicals in your brain, right? Not exclusively. The, the mind is not just physical. It's also spiritual, but it is not less than physical. Yes. And so, so there are certain medications, there are certain treatments that modify or alter or change either the chemical levels in your brain or sometimes the way that your brain processes certain chemicals to try to compensate for some of these malfunctions that happen in the physical apparatus of your brain. So I want to say before we have say anything else, uh, acknowledging that I'm leaving this for very, very little time on purpose. If you are someone who is is suffering with mental illness or thinks you may be suffering with mental illness, please, 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 please go see a doctor. Yes. Go see a doctor who can help you through that. Um, if you need to see multiple doctors, a good doctor yes. will not be offended if you tell them you are wanting to seek a second opinion. Most good doctors will encourage you if you seem anxious about the treatment that you're being prescribed, will encourage you to go seek a second opinion. So please do that because it's important and not everything can be solved with spiritual exercises. Not to say prayer is not sufficient. God has not designed everything to be solved exclusively by praying, right? And we, we acknowledge this in other areas of our life. We acknowledge that I can't just sit and pray that God would sustain me physically, that he would nourish me and make sure I have enough calories in my body. 
praying is not designed to fill the caloric right. necessity, right? It's that I go make a sandwich or I go to the store and I buy something to eat or I, I grow food in my farm or whatever it is, however you get your food. The same thing can be true about certain kinds of medicine. So I appreciated that he brought this up and I appreciated that he had a very balanced approach to this of saying, don't always assume that pills are the solution, but right. also don't assume pills are not the solution. Yes. Yeah, David Murray does a really fantastic job describing, I would say, the underlying foundation for why we should consider that mental illness is not just about something that's existed in our minds. And as somebody who's gone through some physical ailments where I've seen doctors and they told me it's only in my mind, yeah. I'm really sympathetic to that. So what I really love, he can't couches it in this language. He says, listen, sin starts with a compromise. I think that's something we'd all recognize. Like at many, there was a compromise in the commission of that first sin. And then he basically parlays that and saying that compromise causes a compromise, causes our bodies to be compromised. And if we can understand and give intellectual assent to the idea that part of who we are is the chemical composition and makeup of our bodies, then because that chemical composition is compromised, there are times and there will be situations when that demands some kind of equal chemical response by way of medication. So I think he does a really lovely and balanced job of saying, I'm not saying that God isn't involved in those things. In many ways, what again, like file this under what I usually say, what a time to be alive that yeah. like God has given us these wonderful medications to help us because sin has compromised everything and it's compromised even our chemistry. And so therefore we ought to respect the fact that again, if we're a psychosomatic whole, spiritual and body, spiritual and physical, that because those, those, those two things coalesce and come together, that often treatment of each of them is necessary. What we're never saying is that we want to just treat what is physical and not treat what is spiritual. But the opposite is also true. We don't want to just treat what is spiritual and also not treat what is physical. Yeah. And so he does a really good job of saying, I almost like feel like he's grabbing everybody by the shoulders and being like, listen to yourselves right now. Yeah. Like it's legitimate to seek after help. And I would echo what you said, please, loved ones. If you feel that you need help, please go out and get that help. Please be your own advocate for that help. Because sometimes that's what it takes in healthcare is to be your own advocate. But I encourage you to continue to do that. Grab a loved one and say that you need help. And maybe you need support in trying to seek out the right professionals to do that. And of course, at the same time, reach out to your pastor, to your elders, right. so that you're sure that you're getting this really fully orbed, holistic approach to what's going on in your life. But please, would you do that thing? Like even now, stop listening to us, put down the podcast, hit stop, come back to us later, only after you've had some resolve to say, I want to make a change right now. I want to get the help that I need. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think one, maybe kind of a point to leave on, because I, I like I said, I want to say in the strongest terms, um, and, and I'm, I'm the, the pastor online I'm talking about is Gabe Hughes. He has a podcast called uh, uh, When We Understand the Text. Normally a very insightful guy. And actually, this comment was one of the things that spurned a prior denial from me. Um, what he says and what he argues is actually, and this is the point that Murray makes, it's actually a fundamental denial of the biblical anthropology that we uphold. Right. Right. Because, because if we understand mental illness as a malfunction in the physical apparatus of our brain, at least in part, then to deny that that kind of thing exists somehow makes our brain or our mind, our, our physical, the, the, the matter in our skull, it somehow makes that exempt from the fall. 
It makes Perfect. it exempt from the the effects of the fall. That has it's the same thing that causes my body as I age to break down, and my it causes people's arteries to get clogged up, and people stop responding to insulin, and people's organs to fail. The same thing that causes that causes our brains to fail us over time. Um, not everybody, not everybody suffers cognitive decline, although most people do suffer some sort of cognitive decline as they age. But but malfunctions, if you want to kind of put it in almost like mechanical terms, malfunctions in the brain that result in chemical imbalances, that's a result of the fall. And so exactly. we, we want to make sure, just like when we think about food, we think about what we eat, what we don't eat. There are theological and spiritual implications of that, but there are physical implications too. And, and when we talk about mental illness, and this in, in the chapter, it all rolls together because it's all about how different chemicals that we put in our, into our bodies through food or medicine, how that affects not only our mood, but our, the way our bodies work. The same dynamic is at play when we talk about mental illness. We have to think about, am I getting enough sleep? Am I doing the, the activities that energize me, that recuperate me? Am I balancing those energies out, you know, even to get away from medicine? Am I balancing the activities that drain me with activities that, that right. energize me, right? right? One of the things that energizes me is playing video games. It's one of the ways that I just shut off. It gives me a chance for my brain to just reset a little bit. No pun intended, even though it was a pretty good pun, I think. <laughs> it gives my brain a chance just for like refresh, you know, like when you're, when you're, you're, yes. you just sort of veg out, it's because your brain can kind of just rest and recuperate. Well, honestly, like I have to sometimes be intentional to say, I need to put the book down and I need to play video games for a little while, or I need to watch a stupid television show that doesn't make me think, or I need to just take a nap, whatever it is that makes you recuperate. All of those things, this chapter is another chapter that's about depending on God by right. making use of the ordinary means that he's given us to accomplish the re recuperation that he desires for us, right? right? I depend on God by using the ordinary means of eating nutrients. I depend on God potentially by using the ordinary common grace means of, of doctors who may not even believe in God, but, but know the human body and have studied God's right. revelation in nature enough to know that if I take this pill, it's going to adjust this chemical and that's going to help with this mood disorder. Or I, uh, I take part in the common grace that God has given that's allowed us to design entertainment in the form of video games or television or comic books or whatever it might be to be able to recuperate so that when I have to do the thing that drains me, but it's a good thing. He makes the point that these drainers he talks about are not always bad things. Preaching for him was a drainer, but he loves to do right. it, right? For me, um, making the podcast can sometimes be a drainer, right? It takes energy. It takes time. Sometimes right. the last thing I want to do on a Monday evening or a Sunday evening is edit the podcast, but I got to do it or the podcast doesn't come out. So I have to balance that by doing things that energize me so that thing that drains me can be accomplished. So I don't know that we need to go much more in depth in this chapter. Pick up the book read it. It's really, really good. I mean, we get exercised about it every week and we talk about how much deeper it is than we thought it was. We're not just saying that because it really is, it is that kind of book where it surprises you every single time. That's true. So as we close, I want to put us both on the spot more so you than me, because this uh -oh. is already in my mind. So I have a heads up if only slightly, but I, because I know that you have been very thoughtful about like food. And I think that's a journey that you're also on. I want to ask what is one thing that you would say that has 
basically that you guys have done, you and your wife have done, you and my sister have done to like, I would say like help food become more worshipful. So I'll start to give you a little bit of room to process that if you want. So I would say for me, the biggest thing for my wife and I is we've been trying to get better at planning meals. And that really is more to her credit than to mine because she's so great. She's a wonderful cook, honestly. So like, I'm really blessed by that. But this idea of we get together and she'll often say to me, all right, so I'm planning a menu for this week. And that's always painful, right? It takes work. You have to, when you put your list together for groceries, you have to be more thoughtful than just going into the store and saying, you know, I want to gather up this stuff or I'm going to see how things hit me when I'm extemporaneously going through the shelves. But this idea of trying to say, she'll say to me, like, what would you like to eat? What do you want to make? And, you know, some of us are on our schedule. Like, you're going to have to make meals this night and I'll make them this, these other nights. But I've so been blessed by that because just being more intentional and in leaning into that process means that we're likely to choose meals that are more satisfactory, that are a little bit more healthy and that are more balanced. So for me, I would say the best thing that we've done recently is saying we're going to try as best we can to every week create a menu. And we have a list of recipes that we love and we tend to go back to those because they're good. We like to make them and because we know that they'll be balanced. So do you have something that you guys do that you'd say like is kind of in line with what, what Marie is talking about here in this chapter? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's anything we've done as a couple that is sort of fits in that category. But one of the things that I, obviously not related to this chapter because I hadn't read it yet, but um, it sounds weird, but I, I buy nice beer. And I think Ooh, some people buy nice beer because they're beer snobs and they, they have to have like, <laughs> they have to buy the nice beer because it, somehow it's like, it makes them feel better than the people that buy like Sam Adams, which is fine beer. It's, it's delicious. Still nice beer. But right. But for me, <laughs> I buy beer that reflects, it's funny because sometimes I'll go through the checkout line when I'm, I'm buying beer and I, I tend to buy beer at this little um, like gas station in town here. And sometimes the people will be like, man, that's expensive beer. And I kind of look at it and I'm like, good, I'm really going to enjoy it. And, and like the yeah. point is like, I look at the cost of the beer and the quality of the beer as a way to say, if I'm going to put this thing into my body, that honestly has no nutritional value, right? There, there's not, it's not good for me. It's not helping my body in sort of like the nutrition level. It's doing other things that are beneficial. This is for my enjoyment. I want to have my enjoyment be reflected by the quality of the beer I'm drinking and the cost of the beer that I'm drinking. Not like I'm going out and looking for bad deals, right? I like right. a good deal. That's fine. Right. But like, I don't, <laughs> I don't personally tend to buy inexpensive, cheap, like mass produced beers, not because I'm a beer snob, but because I want to really enjoy what I'm drinking. And I like the, I like the variation. So that's kind of something I would say is like, um, you know, like when you're choosing, if you're going to go out for dinner, sometimes it, it, it makes sense, obviously within your budget, but like it makes sense to go to the really nice restaurant because then you're, you're actually making an event out of going out for dinner instead of just kind of like going out for dinner because that's what you do. Um, that kind of thing is, is kind of where my head is at is like, if, if food is merely a means to an end, then you right. should absolutely get the least expensive thing with right. the most nutritional value. Like there should be a rock calculation and every, everybody should be eating the same thing. And it's probably some sort of bean paste. Um, but that's not, it. that's not what it is. Food isn't just a means to an end. There, there's, there's a, there's a symbolic and metaphoric element to it. There's a emotional and a spiritual element to it. So I think sometimes for me making a choice not to buy the best deal, not to, sp and, and in a lot of ways, like, 
not worrying about this is going to sound really terrible. And I know your, your finance economics brain is just going to crumble up into a little ball and cry (laughs) itself to sleep, not worrying about my food budget so much. Like, like I go to the store, I have a rough idea of how much I think we need to spend each week, but I don't, I don't like, I know some people and some people have to, right? Some people are not blessed financially to be able to have this freedom. I know some people who go to the store and they have like a calculator and they're like calculating every single thing they purchase because they have to be on that tight of a budget. I also know some people who don't have to be on that tight of a budget and do the same thing and more power to you if that's a benefit for you. But for me, not being so absolutely concerned about making sure I clip every coupon and that I, I get every deal and that I buy only the cheapest brand. For me, that's an expression of trust in God is that I I can say, you know, God has provided for my needs. He's provided for my family's needs financially. Um, he's providing for the people who worked to bring me this food, whether it's the grocery store employees right. or the farmers or the right. truckers or the, like there's all of that money is, is wrapped up in how much I spend. And so for me, like letting that, that bottom line number go a little bit is also a way that I worship God in terms of like my food choices. I think that's great. I hope this will cause people to do a little evaluation themselves. And really in that spirit of gratitude that we've been talking about all along, I want to say how thankful we are for all of our listeners and our listeners who also have supported us through patreon.com, patreon.com backslash reformed brotherhood. There's 12 people right now that give very generously to the work that we're doing here and help us to cover our costs. We are so thankful, honestly, for everyone. And also for those that have decided after their first obligation of giving to their church that there's some left over and that in seeking the mind of God, they've been willing to share with us. So you can do that if you're one of those people that are thinking, you know, I'd like to be able to contribute to what's happening here. We are so grateful. You can go to patreon.com backslash reform brotherhood or just to reformbrotherhood.com. There is all kinds of good stuff there where you can do to join in to this conversation. And the reason we do the book clubs is because like we consider it a book club, like a book club is not two people. That's just like weirdly kind of reading and talking to one another. So <laughs> what we're talking about here is like, we hope that others are tracking with us and that you would call us, you'd leave voicemails, you send us emails, please do all those things. And the best way to find out how to get in touch is just to go to reformbrotherhood.com. Yeah. And you know, here, here's a funny fact. So, we have a we have a merchandise store that we've never yes. publicized. Yes, we've never we ever told anyone how to find it, but somehow people have bought merchandise from us from there. I'm not sure how they found it. That's true. But uh, we might as well make it public now. Let's there's, do it. There's not a lot on there, but if you go to store.reformbrotherhood.com, maybe people found it because it's like the most obvious URL ever. But if you go to store.reformbrotherhood.com, you can get a, a Reform Brotherhood mug with our new logo on it. You can buy a t-shirt. There's some stickers. We are going to be expanding that um, that offering a little bit. Hasn't been on the, the top list of our priorities. We found out that you have to be very careful when you, you use these dropship groups because the <laughs> first round of t-shirts that we got were awful so we're glad that we hadn't sold any but all of the merchandise on there has been vetted by us and we yes, we've, we've great. vetted the quality um, so if you want to you know we we don't charge a lot of overhead on that uh we would love it if you you know purchased a mug uh, it's a nice 15 ounce mug that jesse and i rave about and then uh, use that mug to tell people about the show when you're drinking your coffee at work yes. and they go, what's with the weird cartoon of those two dudes faces? You can explain this show to them and, and share an episode with them. Uh, and that does give us a little bit of a, a little bit of a financial kickback on those. Um, so if you want to support the show and get some cool stuff, uh, you can check out store.reformbrotherhood.com. And Jesse, 
we're coming down to the last two weeks here of this uh, bookcast. That's true. And we've talked about it. We've got a giveaway. So That's true. by the I time forgot. you're listening to this uh, episode, there should be a page on the website. I don't know what the URL will be because I haven't put it up yet, but there should be a page on the website and a link that allows you to enter the contest to win a copy of Reset uh, by David Murray. And as we've said, we hope that you already have a copy of this book and you've been reading along with us, but we would love for, if you win the book to give it to someone that you know needs it. Um, maybe it's your pastor who is struggling with burnout, or maybe it's uh, somebody else in your church or a coworker, a Christian coworker that you need, uh, you know, who might need it. Um, this book has a lot of practical insight for people. It's, I think it's a book that will help you live a more balanced and holistic and yes. God honoring, glorifying life. Um, so, so share it far and wide, but check it out. Uh, you'll be able to find it on the website next week. I'll be able to tell you what that URL is because I'll be more <laughs> on top of it and I'll have already <laughs> built the URL. Uh, it'll probably be something like reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or something like that. Yeah, that sounds great. That's probably what it's going to be. People it's are, are right now though. going to that website and finding that it actually exists, I, even though in this moment it doesn't. It, yeah. It's, it's going to be a link to a Rickroll. <laughs> now it can't be though because now it's not a rickroll i know the fact that we just set that up so beautifully I, like there was all kinds of irony wasn't it like that's yeah. i feel like that's like inception yeah i guess yeah it's like internet inception yeah definitely check out all the things we talked about our resources check out the dwell app i mean and also one of the things you can do for us here's your call to action loved ones is check out reform brotherhood also let us know who is eating the acorns? Who is finding the nuts? Is it the blind <laughs> squirrel or the blind hog? We need to know. Info at reformbrotherhood.com or you can leave us a voicemail. Who even knows what that voicemail number is? Probably you do, Tony. 607-444-2767. Bros. Well, I think this has been the definitive episode of this particular chapter on refuel that has ever been recorded in the history of mankind. So to that end, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Jesse's frozen. He's frozen.